0: the Duke but not John Wayne welcome to film bites where we review current and past movies I am Robin priest your personal private critic we rate according to a scale that goes from marvelous to spiffing then to tolerable and finally execrable today I'm reviewing the newly released film the Duke this is not a biopic of John Wayne but rather It is about a famous oil painting of the Duke of Wellington. More precisely, an infamous heist of that portrait. It is a simply marvellous film, starring national treasures Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren at the very top of their form. Not least of the movie's fabulous features is that its running time is one hour thirty-five minutes. The sort of length films used to be before the studios decided that a movie is not worth its salt unless it comfortably, and often tediously, exceeds two hours. It is slightly poignant that the film is the director Roger Michel's last feature. He passed away at the age of 65 last September. Most of you will recognize him as the director of Notting Hill, but if you haven't seen his documentary, There Is Nothing Like a Dame, you definitely should. The Duke is based upon a true story. I can hear you groaning already. But that's not warranted in this case. There was no need to embellish the reality. The reality itself is extraordinary enough. A retired bus driver living in Newcastle allegedly stole a Goya from the National Gallery. I use the term allegedly advisedly. First, he took the rap for the removal of the picture, though his son actually perpetrated the heist. And second, there is some reason to doubt whether Goya was actually the artist. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In 1961, the painting was purchased by an American art collector, Charles Reitzman, for the then stupendous sum of £140,000. A very English uproar ensued. The great and good decided that such a national treasure could not be permitted to cross the Atlantic of all things. Wrightsman graciously agreed to sell the painting to the nation at the price he paid, and between them the Wolfson Foundation and the Treasury funded the purchase. Britain's greatest warrior was thus saved and could be publicly displayed. Wellington went on show at the National Gallery, with considerable fanfare, on 2nd of August 1961. But just 19 days later it went missing. Dumbfounded security guards could offer no explanation, and there were no clues as to the painting's whereabouts. Had they thought about it, they might have realised that there were probably two contributory factors. First, that at 4.30 every morning the infrared security alarms were turned off so that the cleaners could go about their work. And second, there was a building site, with large ladders of course, next to the wall of the gallery where there was also a gentleman's lavatory, whose windows opened. You can connect the dots. The flying squad leapt into action, and through Interpol, launched a global search for the criminal gang undoubtedly behind the heist. Trains were stopped, aircraft and ships searched, hundreds of people were interviewed. It was assumed that this was the work of a sophisticated professional art theft ring. That is, until one day, when an anonymous letter was received by a newspaper demanding a donation of £140,000 to charity and an amnesty for the perpetrator in exchange for the painting's return. This intriguing offer was declined. As it turned out, a big mistake. Later, the National Gallery itself received a letter assuring it that the picture is not and will not be for sale. It is for ransom, £140,000 to be given to charity. If a fund is started and on the promise of a free pardon for the culprits, the picture will be handed back. The National Gallery remained unmoved. My favourite part of the story is that during the portraits enforced exile, it made an appearance in the 1962 Bond film Dr. No, sitting on an easel in the evil adversary's lair. As he passes the painting, Sean Connery's Bond comments, Oh, that's where it is. A truly golden moment. Time passed, but the Daily Mirror continued its vigorous campaign for the return of Wellington. In June 1965, it was rewarded. The editor received an anonymous letter, enclosing a left luggage ticket issued at Birmingham New Street Station. It sounds more and more like a film, doesn't it? Wellington was lodged there, it turned out, rolled up and frameless, but undamaged. The portrait was swiftly returned to the National Gallery, but the mystery surrounding its disappearance remained unsolved. Until a few weeks later, when one Kempton Bunton, so named, by the way, because his father had had a big win at the races there, surrendered himself to the police. He was a 61-year-old retired Newcastle bus driver. Any resemblance to Dr. No would have been purely accidental. Bunton confessed, because he was afraid that, after a few few too many pints at his local, he had let something drop and was anxious that the reward of £5,000 should not be collected by a certain person. To stop that, I decided to give myself up. You'd never have found it in 800 years. I put it at the back of me wardrobe, and boarded it up. You can hardly make this up, can you? And I think this could only really have happened in Britain." As you might imagine, Scotland Yard's finest were initially reluctant to accept Bunton's confession. It was rather less glamorous than they had set out their store for. Here was a late, middle-aged man, over six feet tall, and weighing in at more than 18 stones. He told the incredulous officers that he'd taken the painting as a protest against the imposition on poor pensioners of mandatory television licence fees. And it was true that Bunton had conducted a very public campaign against the licence fee for some time, and had twice been sentenced to short stretches in prison for his refusal to pay. His ingenious defence that he had altered his television set so that he could not in fact receive BBC, Cut no ice at all with the Newcastle magistrates twice. Once Bunton's confession to the art theft was leaked, he was lionised in the press as a prototypical English underdog hero. The photos from the time reveal a tall, ungainly pipe smoker, a jowly-faced, sporting those round baker-like glasses that were standard issue in the early 1960s. It turned out that he had written several plays, articles, and even a novel, but sadly none had ever been published. Having served as an air-raid warden in the war, Bunton had then had a series of casual jobs. But as his wife said ruefully, he would always leave after rowing with his boss over a matter of principle. Nonetheless, Bunton was prosecuted for theft, making demands with menaces and causing a public nuisance. The trial was held at the Old Bailey in November 1965, before the rather irascible Judge Arvold. Jeremy Hutchinson, the famous criminal barrister, whose cases included the Lady Chatterley trial and the Profumo affair, was leading counsel for Bunton. His argument was simple, but quite brilliant. The definition of theft at that time required that the defendant should take property belonging to another person with the intention of permanently depriving the owner of it. For those of you who are legally minded, this was changed in the 1968 Theft Act, which you should bear in mind before you decide to borrow something from an art gallery. Jeremy contended that Bunton could therefore not be guilty of theft because he had never intended to deprive the owner, the National Gallery, of the painting permanently. He had merely intended to borrow Wellington to draw attention to what he considered to be the outrageous sum of a hundred and forty thousand pounds paid for it, when so many old age pensioners could not even afford a television licence. The trial started with the evidence of Michael Levy of the National Gallery. Jeremy vigorously cross examined him about the painting. Levy did not know that Hutchinson was holding in his hand the pronouncements of a past president of the Royal Academy, Sir Gerald Kelly, who had questioned the authenticity of the painting, calling it slick, incompetent, and vulgar. Flustered when this card was played by counsel, Levy admitted that there had been some controversy over the authenticity of the painting. Jeremy smelt blood. "'There were those, were there not?' besides Mr. Bunton, who thought a £140,000 was an outrageous sum to pay for this picture. Levy sheepishly admitted that there had been a certain amount of criticism about the price. The prosecution objected to this line of questioning. But Hutchinson was ready. The issue of authenticity was relevant to the charges against Bunton that he had caused a public nuisance. If you are stopping someone going to see an old bit of canvas with a piece of paint slapped on it, there might be some difference between that and a painting worth £140,000. The jury was duly left with a suspicion that not only had the state paid a very large sum of money for a painting, money that could have been used to assist deserving pensioners struggling to pay their television licences, but it might also have bought a dud. Kempton Bunton then lumbered into the witness box. He confirmed that when he had read about the price paid for Wellington, he considered that the £140,000 had been poorly spent. When he came to London, he had the idea of taking this picture from the National Gallery. When he got home, he had put the painting in a cupboard in his bedroom. He had not told his wife, because the world would have known if I'd done so. Bunton said that he had assumed that after his first ransom letter there would be an immediate collection for the picture as the money was to go to charity. He insisted that he always intended to return the painting. "'It was no good to me otherwise. I couldn't have hung it in my kitchen.' The jury had to be won over, and Bunton made a telling impression. Hutchinson summed up that it certainly was not a crime in law to remove a picture from an art gallery provided there was no intention to keep it permanently. However, it did transpire that the frame of the picture had been left by Bunton in a King's Cross boarding house four years earlier, and he'd been unable to locate it since. I will not spoil your fun by telling you the verdict reached by the jury. The film is very true to the real story, though the trial scenes ignore Hutchinson's questioning of the provenance of the portrait. Bunton is played terrifically by Broadbent. He perfectly captures the wannabe playwright and quiet soapbox revolutionary, a man who prefers Chekhov to Shakespeare because he feels that the Bard wrote too many pleas about kings. By night he sits up in bed reading George Orwell. By day he's squabbling with management and getting under the feet of his much-put-upon wife, who already works as a cleaning lady. As brilliantly played by Helen Mirren, Dorothy Bunton is constantly cleaning up the mess left by both her husband and her two adult sons. Bunton watches a curator from the National Gallery on television sighing that the portrait represented an outstanding example of late-period Goya. Some half-baked portrait by a Spanish drunk, was Kempton's take. Broadbent plays the court scenes with panache. He charmingly teases the judge bandies jokes with the jury and explains that he puts his faith not in god but in people meanwhile up in the public gallery sit his own people including the posh young woman who employs his wife as a cleaner and the exploited co-worker whom he once tried to defend individually in kempton's view these people are all just single bricks but put them together and you make a house and eventually you build Jerusalem. Michelle's film evokes a 60s northeast replete with belching chimney stacks and rag and bone men. Symptomatic of a Britain that was caught between the end of rationing and the onset of Beatles mania. The film is unashamedly and unapologetically sentimental. And harks back to the classic English comedies of the 1950s and 1960s but it is so well done and so well acted that schmaltz is avoided. Today, the alleged crime could not be committed in the way that it was, and there's something slightly sad about that. I went to see this at the marvellous Curzon Cinema. Do see this film at one of those, or at an everyman, or at a picture house. Buy yourself a large glass of comfort red wine, accompanied by a box of chocolate honeycomb crunch. Sit back and just enjoy this real-life Robin Hood story. It will warm the cockles of your heart.